He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, May 8, 2021. I've started to learn how to do a podcast. First, get to the smart, accomplished guests right away. And that's what we will do. Today's guest, Clayton Sandell, ABC network correspondent for decades out of Denver. He's coming up. Dave Gunder's Troubadour. Another terrific song. And then Professor Don Smith. The backstory here, what he's doing now, it goes with a common theme in this show 43. 43 is a special number for me. I wore it during away games in basketball in college. Scored a little more on the road than at home. I think about 22 to 18 to average just over 20. Yes, that's right. 1978, Colorado College. Liz Cheney went to Colorado College. So did her mother, Lynn Cheney. I like that they're standing up to Donald Trump. So am I. That's what this podcast in part is about. But most important, it's for your entertainment. Enjoy. This is thrilling for me because Clayton Sandell is somebody I've watched for decades mainly on ABC, where he's been a network correspondent. He is a member of our community. Clayton, welcome to the show. Craig, thank you so much for having me. I have watched and followed you for years as well. So it's a a mutual admiration society. How cool is that? I think people with our initials need to stick together. (laughs) There you go. I like that. CS to CS. What's your middle initial by chance? D for David, named after my father. I've got A for Alan, A-L-A-N. But to talk to you today, may the 4th be with you. It is May 4 when we record this. And I was looking for a special energy, a force of some kind. Do you feel it? I feel it. May the 4th every year is a day when Star Wars geeks all come together and celebrate this galaxy far, far away that we were all introduced to, at least I was, in 1977. But it's a fun day. You know, people share stories. There's all sorts of new announcements that come out. And- all right, we'll get to that. Because I'm like, on a 1 to 10 scale of knowledge about Star Wars, I'm about a 1. But I want to learn, because I think... A lot of things that came out in 77 may be happening now. Where do you put yourself on that scale? Are you at 10 when it comes to Star Wars? No, I I would put myself at a strong 7 to 8. You know, they have these Star Wars trivia shows online, and I watch some of them, and, you know, I can answer about 70% of the questions, maybe 80% on a good day. But some some of these things get really obscure and in the weeds. So yeah, I'd, I'd say about a seven or eight. There are some. And, and do you want to get up to a nine or 10? Is that an aspiration? Because on this day of all days, I'd like to get up to a four. 
I think we could do that. You know, maybe it's funny. I love a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, but some of the, the more obscure trivia, I just, I don't follow. I'm, I'm not that good. All right, we'll get to it. But Carol McKinley referred to you, and that's a fine recommendation. She did a great podcast interview with me. She's fascinating, isn't she? Carol is one of my favorite people in the world, and we have been partners in crime on many, many stories here in Colorado, many good stories, many bad stories, but I, I, I love Carol. She's absolutely one of my favorites. Wow. Does this have anything to do with Sean Benet? No, you're too young. You weren't around in 1996. No, I have, uh, no yeah, that was, that was before my time here, but over the years when developments have happened, uh, of course, Carol is always the first person we go to who's absolutely the expert on John Bonet. But no, yeah, we've worked on all kinds of different stories together over the years, but here and there are John Bonet, but other stuff too. Here's what you two have in common. When she went to see you, what an athlete she was there. And she started working shortly thereafter for KBCO. And my wife was a big fan. She remembers, just like people remember you, probably from your radio days, Tell everybody where you grew up and how you first got into radio. Sure thing. So I grew up in Riverside, California, which, as people know, Southern California is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, kind of out in the desert, a little smoggy when I was a kid. It's gotten better since, which is nice. But yeah, I, I grew up thinking I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And so I worked in the office as a teenager at a helicopter charter company. And through that connection, I met some folks in Temecula, California, who had a public radio station there, KRTM, 88.9 FM. And I started volunteering there on Saturdays and Sundays. It was a weird mix because I was working Saturday nights from like 6 to 10 doing it was an adult contemporary radio station. And then on Sunday mornings, I would come back and do like the all jazz brunch kind of shift. That was fun. It, it was live radio. So I was new to it. So I was able to kind of make my mistakes on the air. I actually once shut down the machine that transmitted the music by accident. Oops. I was shutting everything off for the night, was leaving, and there was a switch that you were supposed to hit to turn off the monitor to the computer system while well, I actually hit the switch that shut everything down. So music just completely stopped until I could frantically grab a CD to throw in the machine and play any song just to give the computer a few minutes to reboot. So that was fascinating. And then I sort of... Wait, did, uh, wait, did, did, did the boss find out about that? Yes, I think the boss was actually there when I did it. it. It was like one of my first shifts. So I learned quickly that that was not the button to push. So I survived that incident and went on to I'd record weather casts and newscasts. And that kind of led to a slightly larger station in San Bernardino, California, where I did radio reporting from the field. Occasionally, I would fill in for the morning news anchor. And, you know, it's funny in this business, one thing sort of leads as a stepping stone to the next. And so that led to doing news radio on a station that no longer exists as a news radio station, but had a legendary reputation, which was KFWB News 98. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. In Southern California? In Southern California, yeah, in Los Angeles. And it was the only... 24-hour news radio station at the time. There was a bigger, stronger-signaled competitor in a station called KNX, 
which is still around. But KNX, technically, because they played sports games, they were not, uh, you know, Dodger games and such. They were not a 24-hour news radio station. So we were the only ones that could claim that at the time. And What year was that? That was about, I started with KFWB in about 1995 and did it for five years till I moved to D.C. And so were you out in the field or an anchor or both? No, I was out in the field. I kept my scanner on. You know, I was in my late teens, early 20s. So I kept my police scanner on throughout the night. And if there was a shooting or a fire or a train derailment or whatever the heck was happening out in Riverside, San Bernardino County, I would hop in my car and race out there. And I got paid 10 bucks a story, Craig. So I would file three or four stories. Who decided whether a story was worthy, just whether it got airplay? Yeah, exactly. You know, if something happened, I would call the desk in Hollywood. They would either say yay or nay, and I would run out there and and do it. So yeah, I would I would pitch stuff where they would hear about stuff. And and whose vehicle were you driving? Your own or a company car? My own. Yep, I had my own. I, it was all my own stuff. Uh, cell phone, pager, tape recorder. The only thing that wasn't mine, or the only thing that they gave me, was a fancy KFWB mic flag that I could put up and. Uh, and that's Utah. all you need. So you're hustling all over Southern California. You must have known those streets backwards and forwards. I did. And I, in fact, I, still in the back of my mind, you know, re- can remember all of the radio jargon that the police would use, the 10 codes and things like that. And it told you what was going on if you knew how to decipher it. So, yeah, I got, I got really good at that. You know, and now the equivalent of that, I feel, is like the video stringers that are out in Southern California that do the same thing. Every police incident, every incident they hear on the scanner, they race to and turn it into television. So I was sort of a radio version of that for a while. Right. But this is before Google Maps and all of that. L.A. is complicated, but growing up in the equivalent of East L.A., what an advantage. So tell us, what huge story did you happen on before anybody else knew about it? Give us your big scoops. (laughs) let's see oh my gosh you know i I ran around to all of the breaking crime stories was a lot of what i did so it was like you know the the brush fires and the shootings there was a big case out there that was one of the first that i remember covering it was sort of a big deal for riverside there was a shooting at city hall one time that i got to pretty quickly where thankfully nobody was killed but people were injured Oh, wait, did you say thankfully people were injured so you could earn your $10 with this story? Well, people were injured but not killed. Not killed, right. That was a big story. And then another big one that made national news was a Riverside Police Department shooting of a woman named Taisha Miller, a young black woman who was in her car and passed out. There was a, a firearm in the car, and the story was that the police broke into the car and, and thought that they were being shot at, and they ended up killing her. Turns out she never did fire a shot, but that was a fairly controversial story that got a lot of attention. And so it was really fascinating for me to watch how the big media from L.A. and, and sometimes the networks would come in and cover these stories, and it was a huge learning experience. It was almost like getting a master's degree in breaking news because I I got to see how the pros did it, you know, and I was just this sort of like amateur sort of watching it, watching it unfold and learning from all these people. But that was sort of the big takeaway from me. The, The company, for example, that hired Richard Jewell for the Olympics, remember the 1996 Atlanta bombings, that security company happened to be based in San Bernardino County. 
where I lived and covered news. And so when that story broke, everyone descended on the security company in Fontana and wanted to hear from the folks that hired him. And so that was an international story. Did you watch that movie, Richard Jewell? I haven't seen it yet. Well, they need to remake it because Lynn Wood <laughs> is portrayed as normal and it turns oh, out really? he's not. Anyway, I digress. Another Jean Benet connected situation. But no, that's fascinating. And clearly you have a network quality voice. Somebody must have discovered you're good looking too and given you a TV <laughs> contract. <laughs> well, it was interesting. I started at ABC in 2000. And for the first basically nine years, I was off camera. I was a producer. I worked behind the scenes. I worked with Sam Donaldson on his webcast and radio show for a while all of it behind the scenes. And probably around 2008, 2009, we were doing some new things online. We had a, a technology show that ABC produced called Ahead of the Curve, and it was only for online. And, and so they had a host for it. And then one day they needed backup hosts. And, and so I raised my hand to do it. And, and you would anchor a little five-minute newscast and then do about a six or seven minute interview with a guest. And so I started doing that a little bit. And then I started filling in at our affiliate service. Time out. That sounds like an early podcast to me. Yeah, exactly. And so it was fun to kind of dip my toe back into, you know, I had no intentions of going to ABC and being on camera. How many of those ahead of the curve segments did you do? Gosh, I probably did maybe a dozen of them or so. And do you remember, was there anything that you said, wow, we talked about Bitcoin or we talked about this or that way back when? You know, it's funny. All things lead back to Star Wars, right? There was a guest that came on, a guy named Garrett Brown, who was the inventor of a thing called the Steadicam. And I don't know if you remember or have seen these Steadicams. It's basically a rig that the camera operator wears. It's a big, heavy vest, and it stabilizes the camera so that you can walk with it and go up and down stairs and around corners, and it keeps the image perfectly still. Well, Garrett Brown invented the Steadicam, and he had used that technology to come up with a new device that allowed you to operate heavy tools. And so we had him on ahead of the curve to talk about that. And I was kind of like a fanboy because Garrett, of course, did the Steadicam sequences for movies like The Shining and Return of the Jedi and all sorts of different things. And so so that was a fun one. I think that was the first time I remember sort of being awed by, really awed by one of our guests. So that was kind of fun. Now you have seen The Shining, correct? I have. Have you stayed at the Stanley? I have not stayed at the Stanley, but I have stayed in, if you ever are down in Cripple Creek, there's an equally creepy former hospital that's a hotel down there now. Well, let me ask you this. Did they film The Shining in Cripple Creek? No, I believe The Shining was mostly filmed in London, actually, recreated on a soundstage. No, but it was the Stanley Hotel. That was the setting and the critical right. scene. So... You got a wife, you got two kids. I'm suggesting you go to the Stanley. Do your kids like horror movies? Uh, they do. We actually, just during spring break, we drove to Arizona and stayed in a haunted-ish hotel in Jerome, Arizona. So they would be down to, to stay at the Stanley. But I did take my son there, and he still hasn't watched The Shining. I said, there's scenes here, and he's like, Dad, I'll watch it someday. How was it? How was the stay? 
it was memorable. I mean, it's so close. Why not stay at the Stanley? It's on the top of the hill in Estes Park. And my experience is that that's the place to be in any town. The person Absolutely. with the high ground, right? Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. It's beautiful. And they still have that maze. Anyway, you like this shining. I don't watch that much horror or science fiction. We're going to get to that. But I want to talk to you about how you became a big network correspondent since you were behind the scenes. How did that happen? Well, you know, so after hosting that tech show and doing a little bit of filling in at our affiliate service, ABC has a service called News One that produces stories for all of the ABC affiliates. Can I stop you for one second? Because I know a little about News One because I had the great fortune of knowing Pam Saunders, who worked at Channel 7, an uh -huh. ABC affiliate. Then she worked for News One. And she kept calling on me during the Sean Benet coverage. Did you happen to know Pam Saunders? I didn't know Pam Saunders. She's probably, I guess, before my time there. But Right, because she was something else. Tell everybody how that works. ABC is so big. And my God, it's now part of Disney. It's gotten even bigger. But when you say an affiliate network, explain that whole News One concept. Yeah, so News One is basically a part of ABC News where it's specialized to provide stories to all of the ABC News affiliates around the country. So any ABC affiliate, whether it's in Los Angeles or Great Falls, Montana or Tallahassee, Florida, can take these stories and run them. And then they can also, there's a dedicated set of News One correspondents who can do custom what we call live shots where they appear live on local newscasts using all of the global resources of abc news that the normal flagship broadcasts like world news tonight and good morning america will use but it just happens to be specially tailored to the needs and the requirements and the deadlines of the affiliates around the country and you have the equipment that you need, the network quality cameras and sound abilities. Yep. And then you do it kind of on spec or whatever, and you submit two and a half minutes of whatever. And then somebody yeah. at corporate decides if they like it. And people, it might be on Good Morning America, might be on the nightly news, or it might go into the garbage pail, right? Yeah, they come up with their two or three main stories that they're going to do that day. And so they will offer them up. They'll put them in a list and tell the affiliates, look, this is what we're working on and this is what we can offer. They tell them all about it. They'll send out the scripts so the stations know what they're going to get. And yeah, it just kind of goes into the hopper. And you know, nowadays it used to be transmitted out by satellite. But of course, these days everything is is online. So stations can just click a button and download it. And a few minutes later, they're plopping it into their broadcast. And now with the internet, it's the public that decides what goes viral. It's not as much in the hands of network people. They still have a lot of power, but I think we're moving to a society where more and more it's the broader public that decides who's popular, what story gets played, what doesn't. Am I right? Well, you and I know a time when there were three broadcast networks and, you know, maybe a cable news channel or two, and that was sort of it. And nowadays, you don't need a television station. You don't need a network. You have so many ways to broadcast, whether it's a, a news video, a breaking news video. You can live stream 
a news video. We saw that up at the Boulder shooting at King Supers live stream on YouTube. You know, my daughter now is on TikTok and did a video the other day that got something like 200,000 views. It's it's incredible to me the, the number of outlets. And you're right, that means that it has really kind of democratized this process. There's no there's no gatekeeping really anymore that can happen. Right. It's all decentralized, although not really. ABC still has a lot of power. It's parent company, Disney, etc. So let's hear, how did you find out you were going to be a network correspondent assigned to Denver, Colorado? <laughs> well, ABC had created these positions at the time they were called digital reporters, and it was essentially people who could not only report on air, but also shoot their own video, send that video, edit that video. We, it was kind of an all-in-one type of job, and they wanted to create a couple of these positions around the country. Denver happened to be one of the places that we came up with, and I applied for it. And in 2009, the family and I drove out and came to Colorado. Nice. And are you looking back, or is Colorado your home now? You know, for now, Colorado is definitely our home. We love it here. It's been a great, great run. We've raised basically two children here the entire time, and we love it. We love the people. We love the, you know, I'm looking out my my back window as we speak here, looking at the, the mountains and the clouds and the blue sky, and it's it's hard to beat, Craig. Right. They have mountains in California near Riverside, but with that smog, sometimes you can't see it as much. We all know about the view here. We know about raising a family, but we want to find out what it's like to be a network correspondent. It seems so exciting, so romantic. Every day an adventure. Tell us the life that you lived for decades. Well, I tell you, when we first moved here, we had been here about a month, and I was thrown right into the deep end because folks who were here remember that the Najib Bulazazi case broke that summer of 2009, he was, of course, the guy that was accused of plotting to blow up the New York City subways. And it was a huge, huge story here involving the FBI, local law enforcement, absolutely international story. And here I was new to Denver and not knowing anybody or anything. And it was one of the more memorable stories that I ended up covering. And I, I remember there was a an affidavit that came out once he was arrested that said he had gone to a hotel somewhere and had mixed up a batch of explosives in a hotel. And I remember the sort of crazy time this was and trying to figure out which hotel this was. And we finally figured out where he had gone to test this explosives and, and you know, just the insane amount of attention that the entire case attracted. I just remember it being a really intense couple of weeks. And then he was shipped back to New York. And I, I remember feeling a tremendous sense of relief when he got on that plane going to New York, because then it was sort of a story that was that was not local anymore. He had that inexperienced Colorado council. I can't remember his name, a young guy. Yes. And I remember. Yeah, who was uh, like, a, like a DUI attorney, I believe. He wasn't really a criminal defense attorney. Right. And I remember the beauty supply store. It's right along 225 at Colfax where he got the compounds that he mixed in the hotel in an effort to blow up New York City. That's kind of a big story. That is right. Yeah, I remember that. I remember Standing outside of the beauty supply store, I remember standing outside of his attorney's office right off of Colorado Boulevard, 
it was just a crazy intense time and it just felt like art Folsom was his attorney it just felt like right. it was a crazy introduction to that world and you know started off that way and then of course there was a, a lot of sort of bad stories that we covered i you know every story that that involved a child you know the jessica ridgeway story stands out Ugh. Of course, the Aurora Theater shooting. Uh, so there were a lot of a lot of bad stories, but there were there were some really good and sort of heartwarming stories as well. And we were talking about our mutual friend Carol McKinley. The story that I love that Carol and I did one time started with a story that we were doing on stolen valor. There was a guy somewhere back east who had purchased a bunch of military medals at a army surplus store and he had used those medals to basically fake his credentials and so that original story took carol and i down to colorado springs and just as an exercise we went into an army surplus store down there to see if we could buy an army medal and we ended up finding a purple heart at this store and so we did the story we showed the purple heart in our story as a way to sort of demonstrate just how easy it is to get some of these medals and on the back of this medal was the name of a guy uh, taft m joseph and so we started this process of trying to figure out if we could find taft joseph and figure out the story to, to figure out why he no longer had his purple heart and so we found a guy that matched his name he was living in kansas at the time and I called him up and I think, you know, he's older guy, our, you know, Vietnam vet. And he, I believe, thought I was a telemarketer. So he kept hanging up on me. Like, I'm trying to call this guy to tell him I think I found his purple heart and he keeps hanging up on me. <laughs> so I had his brother's number as well. So I called his brother, explained who I was, explained what we were trying to do. So his brother called Taft Joseph and sure enough, they had been missing this Purple Heart for decades. It had gone missing on a move. A box that it was in got lost on the way. And for years, he had been missing this Purple Heart. So Carol and I actually flew to Overland Park, Kansas on a Saturday, I think it was, and went down and returned this guy's Purple Heart to him. And I got to tell you, it was one of the nicest feelings to be able to do that. He was so appreciative. His family was so appreciative. And so that was back in, that was about 2015, I think that was. So now how much did you purchase that Purple Heart for? Oh, gosh, I think we bought it for like 10 bucks, you know, and there were there were a number of them there. Oh. You know, you could get all sorts of distinguished medals at this store. But yeah, I think we paid about 10 bucks for it. What a story. So it's a two person crew that gets on the plane to go to Overland Park. And Carol, she's holding the camera and managing the sound while you do the interview with your ABC flag? Actually, in that case, Carol and I flew out there and we have a lot of freelance crews that we work with around the country. So there was, I believe, a, a crew based out of Kansas City that we worked with on that story. And the bigger the crew, in my limited experience, the better you're going to look on TV because <laughs> the more expensive the cameras and the equipment, they have ways to make even a guy like me look good. Exactly. And me as well. It's all, it's all about the lighting. And these guys that have been doing this, men and women who have been doing this for years, are experts at the really good lighting and the really good sound. And so when you have, when you have a crew like that that's you know, ready to run and gun and set up all the equipment needed, it, uh, there's no doubt it makes you look 
much better. Everything looks better on Good Morning America, especially on the nightly news. Right. They don't want anybody to look bad. Right. So Exactly right. Yeah. You're based in Denver, center of the country, although we lean a little west. But what was your territory? How far around the region were you assigned? We generally went anywhere that was about a two-hour flight radius from Denver. So we would go to Portland and Seattle and Houston, Omaha and Los Angeles and New Mexico and Arizona. I mean, we went, that was basically our circle. But depending on what was going on, I could be sent overseas. I covered the disappearance of Flight 370, the Malaysian Airlines flight. So I went to Malaysia. I went to Australia. I covered climate change a lot in the past. So I got sent to places like Denmark and the Arctic Circle and Greenland. And so it just kind of depended on what was going on. But the potential was that you, you could be sent anywhere around the world at any moment. I went to Hong Kong two summers ago. My God, how much mileage rewards do you have? <laughs> yeah, United Airlines likes me. That's that's for sure. That's great. You can essentially fly the rest of your life for free on United. <laughs> well, I wish. Not quite that good. But yeah, there are some there are some great benefits for sure. Do you like traveling like that? I mean, is it exhilarating? What do you wake up in the morning, have your coffee, and then how do you know where you got to go? Well, yeah, a lot of times you never did know when you would get that call to get on a plane. I, you know, I, I nearly missed the flight to Hong Kong because the call came so late. They said, we need you to go to Hong Kong. We need you to go right now, get to the airport. And it was, you know, just a, I don't even think I, I have, I had sort of a half bag packed, but I ended up having to buy clothes in Hong Kong just because there was no time to get everything together that I really needed to get together. So there was a lot of, lot of that last minute travel. A lot of times it came late in the day, in the evening, so you wouldn't sleep overnight. You'd travel and then immediately have to drive to a wildfire in Spokane, Washington, or whatever it was. You just prepared yourself for the idea that you might be traveling very last minute, and you might be up for 36 or 48 hours straight before you finally got to got to crash a little bit. Right. And my gosh, the couple of times I got to do Good Morning America, you have to get up so god-awful early, <laughs> especially if you want any makeup on. So, And I did. Did you ever get used to the hours? I imagined you could be up really late at night or you have to get up at two in the morning. Tell us about that part of your job. Yeah, yeah. Being out in the West, and it's even worse, of course, in Los Angeles or on the West Coast or Hawaii. Live shots from Hawaii were absolutely the worst because a live shot in Hawaii happened at like midnight. And so when we were covering the volcano eruption a few years ago on the Big Island, you know, you would leave the hotel around 11 p.m. and drive, and then you had about a half a mile hike to get to where the lava was actually erupting out of the ground and do your live shot. And then it's like you're awake and the adrenaline is going and you've just hit your deadline and all of that. So the hours could be really, really, really wacky. But here in Colorado, yeah, I would typically get up around two, maybe three depending on if we had to drive anywhere, depending on how complicated the setup was or what we were doing. But yeah, you know, you have these days where you know you're just going to be tired for two or three days, especially if it's a big story and you're running around the clock because once you're done with Good Morning America, you really only have a few hours before you have to start 
hustling again to get new material and a new story for World News Tonight. So, Right, and get in the right spot, have the volcano right behind you and all of that, right? Exactly. Gather all the right material, the, 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 the right interviews, all the right pictures. So the deadlines come quick, and they seem to come even quicker when you're exhausted. We're not feeling sorry for you. You know, a spontaneous trip to Hong Kong, that sounds like (laughs) super spy stuff. You must have a supportive spouse. You have two kids. Honey, I'm going to Hong Kong to see you, and I don't know when. Yes, very, very, very understanding spouse. My wife, Mary, God bless her. She's a certified nursing assistant and a massage therapist who holds down the fort while I am gone and uh, keeps the trains running and the the kids fed and clothed and off to school on time. So yeah, I could never have done this without support like that, for sure. Right. And the emotions of it. These murder cases in Colorado can be depressing. Roar Theater Massacre, horrible. And then Patrick Frazee killing Kelsey Barrett. But Christopher Watts, my God, the atrocity against his family. Were you covering all of those things? I did. Yeah. I covered the Watts case. We were out there, you know, before we knew what had happened to that family. We turn next tonight here to a chilling piece of audio never heard before. Newly released recordings of Chris Watts being interrogated. He's the father who murdered his own wife and girls. And tonight it is impossible to imagine how any father could share what he did about what his little girl said. Here's ABC's Clayton Sandell. It's a dark and disturbing dive into the mind of triple murderer Chris Watts, heard in a newly released interview with investigators. So this makes sense. That's why I know you guys keep asking these questions because it doesn't make sense to me. His wife, Shanann, 15 weeks pregnant, seen here coming home from a business trip in August. Watts says they argued. She accused him of cheating and told him this. Never going to see the kids again. Never going to see them again. Get off me. Don't hurt today. Watts says that triggered him into a rage. He says Shanann did not fight back as he strangled her to death. I just felt like there was already something in my mind that I wasn't planning that I was going to do it. And I woke up that morning and it was going to happen. And I had no control of it. The couple's daughters, Watts says, woke to see their mother face down in bed wrapped in a sheet. So what happened, Bella came in. What she said. Watts says he drove his wife's body from their Frederick, Colorado home to a remote oil field, his girls sitting in the back seat. There, Watts says he strangled three-year-old Celeste and four-year-old Bella. She said what happened to Cece, the exact same thing that happened to me as Cece. She said soft voice, she always had. Watts tells investigators he knew his TV interviews a day later were unconvincing. Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just, just, just come back. Some people said it just, it just made it look even worse. It didn't look good. Watts pleaded guilty to all three murders, he says, to give Shanann's family closure. But he also avoided the death penalty. He'll spend the rest of his life in a prison cell where he says he keeps a picture of his wife and daughters on the wall. You know, I had spoken with Chris Watts' father the day that he was due to go in and be interviewed by police. And... You know, his father said that he was planning on doing an interview with us later that afternoon. Well, that interview never happened because, of course, he he ended up being arrested for that crime later that day. I think it was a Wednesday. But not for somebody, I think from Channel 7, got a pretty damning interview with him. That's exactly right. Yeah, I believe that interview maybe happened on a Monday. And we reached out to him right after that to see if we could talk to him again. And, you know, at that point, he, he had at least through his dad, had agreed to do it. 
But of course, you know, things things didn't go his way. That was a really tough one. I can't even go there. Yeah, it was just just awful. And um, mom was uh, pregnant, right? And um, yeah, just... yeah, it's just just as as awful as as they get. And yeah, so we, we did that story quite a bit. And then the the Frazee case was was fascinating for a number of reasons. I mean, that one was another one where you had all of these weird mystery players and we, we knew there were other people that had helped him out. And again, Carol was instrumental on that story. She was able to, to track down and figure out who Patrick Frazee's attorney was. And so we were the first crew team to catch up with him as he left his attorney's office one day. And of course, he wouldn't talk to us, but he just kind of hopped in his car and in that red truck that he drove and sped away from us. But that was a, a fascinating couple of weeks because with Carol's help, we just developed some really good sources on that story and ended up being the only crew there, not only on the day that he was arrested, but even the week before that, when they first raided his house and served a search warrant at his property there down in Florissant. So we, we were there both times for that. And it was kind of an exhilarating ride. I, I ended up running into him a couple of times. We had been sitting out in front of his house waiting for him to come out one day. And my camera guy, I think, had to go to the restroom or something. He had to break off to go get lunch or something. So I was the only one sitting there at the time that Patrick Frazee comes down the drive of his property. And the way that the property was laid out, you could see him coming for about a quarter of a mile. And unfortunately for Patrick, he didn't have an automatic gate that came in and out of his property. So when he wanted to leave, he had to stop his truck, get out of his truck, walk to the gate, open the gate, get back in his truck, drive the truck through the gate, get out again and walk over and lock the gate and then walk back to his truck. So lots of opportunity to approach him and ask him questions. So there were a couple of times just me and him. And your iPhone, I hope. And iPhone, yeah, trying to ask him questions. He never did He never did speak to me, uh, unfortunately. But that was a, a really, really interesting case, of course, because of his, his the help that he had. I, I was sort of kidding around, but you did pull out your iPhone to record it? Oh, absolutely. You bet I did. You bet I did. I, I recorded the whole thing. Said it's in correspondent right there. Yeah, well, and that's that's the expectation, right? You got to use the tools that you have at the time. So I followed him <laughs> back and forth to the gate. I mean, he just, if he had been armed, he might have tried to take me out. Just the looks that he gave me, I froze a few of the frames of the video. And if looks could kill, man, I would have been uh, victim number two, I think. He was not happy to see us there the, the couple of times that we we met him in front of his house. You have already used the phrase gatekeeper, and now we're talking about Frazee's gate. <laughs> Tell us about the gatekeepers of ABC, Disney Corporation. It's so gigantic. What a corporation. And a lot of people criticize the media, call it the lamestream media. They target ABC for politics. And have you noticed that? Did you notice that? Is there gatekeeping? Do you think there's anything to this media bias stuff or is it overblown? Uh, you know, I think it's overblown. I think people see what they want to see. But I think if you go back and examine the record, it, which is easy to do because all of ABC stories are posted online, I think any objective view of, of what we do or what ABC does I think they're pretty middle of the road. And that was always sort of our guiding principle, you know, straight down the middle, 
we don't have dogs in the fight. We just kind of report what we see. But I think, you know, there's a lot of fracturing in where people get their news. And you can go get your news from outlets that kind of reinforce your own views of the world and and that sort of thing. But I truly think that once, if you were to take sort of a semi-academic look at how ABC News reports the news, I believe you would find it pretty pretty middle of the road, pretty right down the center. And do you pride yourself as being an objective journalist? Yeah. I mean, look, somebody told me that, a mentor of mine once told me that you, you can't pretend to be objective. None of us are objective. But what you need to do is come to an understanding about your own biases and the things that we all bring to every situation and make sure that you're sort of being honest about what your biases are and then counteract them so that they're sort of canceled out. Being objective is sort of a an ideal that I don't really think exists, but I think if you're aware of your biases and you can incorporate that into how you do your job, then I think you'll do okay. Everything is political. Are you political or do you stay away from that because of your job? I pretty much stay away from it. I I train myself to stay away from politics and discussions of politics and discussions of my own political affiliation. I do. I I avoid it even to this day, avoided it pretty strongly for exactly that reason. I, I don't want to be I never wanted to be painted in a in a certain light or have people have expectations of me. I wanted people to simply judge me by my reporting. And on that standard, I think you would never be able to tell what my politics are. You can weigh in on this or not. It's your choice. But I've noticed with mainstream media, and I agree with them, but some people don't, they have labeled Donald Trump's claims of the election being rigged as a big lie. And they say it. George Stephanopoulos says it. And all the networks do except Fox News, of course, and people like that. Have you noticed that? And I'm wondering if you had any reaction to what the big lie wrought, which was January 6th. To me, that's a game changer in the media and elsewhere. Do you think that the media sacrificed its objectivity by labeling Trump's big lie, a big lie? Or do you think they would not have been doing their job if they would have done anything else? Uh, you know, I, I guess the, the use of that term is sort of up to, to others to decide whether whether it's appropriate. And I think just, you know, when you present the facts and you present the lack of evidence for widespread fraud, I mean, I remember doing stories with the Registrar of Voters in Jefferson County and they just being completely transparent and open and honest about the fact that this is one of the most protected processes that we have and that they take it very seriously and that there's just simply no evidence for that. But yeah, you know, I'm going to probably leave the use of that label uh, to others to decide whether whether it's right. And that's my word. And a lot of people adopted big lie with capital B, capital L. But just the fact that the network says, hey, There was no widespread fraud. Just like you say, some things are incontrovertible. And here's another one. And this is more your bailiwick, climate change. Do you think that it's incontrovertible? And how should the media handle it? Yeah, so I started covering climate change in 2005. And at that time, there was a lot of disinformation around climate change. There were a lot of efforts by 
both big oil and the U.S. government, frankly, the administration at the time, were trying to downplay the work that scientists were doing. And so, you know, our focus was to basically talk about the science and focus on the scientists and the work that they were doing at that time. And so I became convinced in the research and the scientific process, if there's an expert telling you something, (laughs) and many, many highly educated experts telling you something, it's like, exactly who am I to... Contradict them, right. Yeah, we were seeing the reports, looking at the scientific studies, but also going to places like Barrow, Alaska, where they had a cemetery on the edge of town at water's edge that was slowly being eroded away and bodies were washing away as the sea level was rising and the the shoreline was eroding away and the sea ice was gone. that sounds terrible yeah the point is we were we were seeing it happening in places that were changing rapidly now i i think that you know back then you know and, and we're in in Earth time, we're talking just a, a blink of an eye, but but even then, you know, we were seeing a lot of effects in places like the Arctic, whereas now there's more evidence mounting that storms are becoming stronger here in the lower 48 and things like that and, and will continue to get worse. So what you're saying is you've seen the evidence, you've traveled around and you've seen the exhibits, you've heard the yeah. experts, but you also got a chance that few people have had to Look at the evidence. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, we looked at the evidence. We talked with the actual scientists, many, many dozens of them over the years that were leading this research. And we used to hear that peace, you know, scientists were were making this up to get grant money and to, you know, fund their research, that sort of To control people. To control, yeah. It, it was always fascinating to me because you would put that question to a scientist and they would say, you know, the the way that you make a name for yourself in science is to find the thing that's different, the thing that breaks conventional wisdom. And so, you know, what's the incentive for just repeating all of these findings? If we can find something that uh, is different, that, that sort of breaks the mold and tells people something they didn't know, that's what our goal is, not to go along with the... Right, and you would be a Fox News star as well. <laughs> there you go. So, yes, I would say that over the years, I saw a lot of the evidence up close and, you know, continue to see it. But now it's a little closer to home. Well, that's cool. I appreciate you talking about these topics, but it is May the 4th that we are recording this. You are a Star Wars aficionado. (laughs) I know you only gave yourself a seven or an eight, but... How much time have you invested into Star Wars? And didn't you turn it into part of your career, too? I absolutely did. I called Star Wars my side hustle because, you know, my normal day job was covering fires and shootings and people doing bad things to each other. And about six years ago, in 2015, when the new movie, the new Star Wars movie was coming out, a movie called The Force Awakens, I had decided, having been a Star Wars fan since I was four, that's when I saw the first movie, I decided that I was going to go to a Star Wars convention, just as a civilian. I was going to go with a buddy of mine, and we were going to go geek out on Star Wars stuff for two or three days in Anaheim, California. And I got a call from my boss about a week before, who said, you know, if you're going to be there anyway, why don't you just file for some stories from there? And I... It took me about two seconds to agree with him. 
And so I ended up filing stories for World News Tonight, Nightline, a whole bunch of pieces for the website, digital. And it was sort of this door just kind of opened. And it was like, wow, I could kind of do this fun thing that I loved as part of my job. So from then on, I did a whole bunch of stories about how the movies are made, how the visual effects were created, and kind of found a niche with talking about sound design. We did a 30-minute documentary on the sound design of Star Wars The Last Jedi. So it was this really cool thing that I got to do that you know, maybe did two or three times a year, I would do a fun Star Wars story, but it was a great kind of mental health reset from doing all this, you know, the stories about violence and bad things happening. It was a great way to just sort of reset and have a little fun and, and jump into this world that I, that I love. And get your convention paid for by the company. Now, wasn't that good fortune? I can't remember when ABC was taken over by Disney, but isn't there some synchronicity between yes. Disney and Star Wars? And For all sure. Of that? Yeah, yeah. So Disney bought ABC, I want to say 1995, 1996, somewhere in there. And yes, the buzzword is synergy. And so whenever Disney comes out with, or, you know, Disney, Lucasfilm, Marvel, whenever they come out with something new, the natural progression, the place where you're going to see it first is probably going to be on something like Good Morning America. Wow, you just said a magic word that my 18-year-old will pick up on Marvel. Because he's <laughs> a Marvel maven. Yeah. And you're a Star Wars maven. Are you also into Marvel or is it, you're more Star Wars? I love the Marvel movies. I love the Marvel series. I wouldn't say that I'm I'm up on the lore as much as I am with Star Wars, but they have done a, a fantastic job with, with the movies and the series, and we enjoy them very much in our house. But yeah, no, definitely more of a Star Wars nerd. Well, wasn't that forced on your kid? My God, you put up on Twitter, Clayton Sandell, I have to call you out. Tell everybody what you did to exploit your child. I, oh, well, if you have something specific in mind, tell me. But Yes, the one where you had your beautiful little boy, his first three-syllable word. Oh, yes! Everybody got to see it, and we're going to play this sound right now. Who is this? Chewbacca. Who? Chewbacca. 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 Tell everybody how that came about. So that was a few years ago. My son was, uh, gosh, I, I want to say he was two or three at the time. And he had, we had lying around a, a Chewbacca action figure. And really being my son, he had no chance. He, he was going to be steeped in all kinds of Star Wars lore and movies and the whole bit from a young age. And he had this action figure, which he loved. And we would tell him, this is Chewbacca, Chewbacca. And I recorded a video one day of him saying the word, and it was truly his first three-syllable word that he ever said. And so I recorded this, and I tweeted it at the actor who played Chewbacca, the late Peter Mayhew, and no, I'm not thinking anything of it. And Peter Mayhew retweeted that video to all of his fans, how could he do that if he was dead? Oh, he died later. Right. When he was alive, Craig, come on. Oh, okay. no, just... 
Keep he, going. He actually just passed away one year ago. Almost. Almost. I'm dead. sorry. All right. I'm sorry to all the Peter Mayhew fans and the Chewbacca legions out there. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. The Chewbacca fans are a very forgiving bunch, Craig. So Peter Mayhew retweeted this tweet, and what was funny about it? It was, I want to say. One of the London tabloids, I think it was The Guardian, somebody like that, picked up on that tweet. It was the UK Mirror. The UK Mirror, thank you very much. So the UK Mirror, as often happens, an actor will tweet something and an outlet will write an entire article about it. And that's exactly what The Mirror did. They took this Peter Mayhew tweet and re reposted the video and wrote about me and wrote about my son. It was hysterical to see it. So he was tabloid famous at an early age for saying the word Chewbacca. What is it about Star Wars that you're passing on to your children? What is the attraction? You know, it was something that for me, I was four years old when I saw Star Wars in a theater in 1977. And so I think it had no, there was no other choice but for it to just sort of attach itself to my DNA. And I just loved the world, the characters, you know, the action of it was, you know, like nothing I had ever seen, but it was like nothing that the world had ever seen. You know, we were coming out of a very dark decade, the 1970s with Vietnam and movies were sort of gritty and realistic and depressing. And here comes this bright, shiny object that just ignited a culture and a society and fans around the world. And I think as I've gotten older, the thing that I want my kids to kind of take away from it, the themes of it, are these themes of being there for your friends, friends helping friends, doing the right thing in the face of evil and, you know, these big nasty forces in the galaxy and trying to do the right thing and staying on the right path. And it offers kind of a look into friendships and, and hope, really. So it's the characters. That's interesting. Is it the philosophy? Don't they make it into a religion? Isn't there something called yeah, the force. Jediism? Jediism? <laughs> the force, yeah, which I think years ago was like uh, voted as like one of the top religions in England or something like that. But yeah, it, you know, just, just this idea of light side and, and dark side and not giving into your basis instincts and your worst fears and doing the right thing and staying on the the light path is uh, sort of overriding philosophy, which I, I think is uh, is a is a great lesson. And if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty good at politics, I'll give myself a nine or a ten. Joe Biden's speech, I think at the DNC, was all about let there be light, and we're going to find the light and the optimism of that. But my lawyer mind that relies on evidence. I think when I saw a lightsaber, I said, well, what is that? That's not possible. But now I hear they're going to open up a hotel where people have real lightsabers. Tell us, is that what you love about Star Wars? Is it ahead of the curve? Oh, oh for sure. You know, and, and, you know, from the moment that the lightsaber appeared on screen, it has been kind of the holy grail of, of Star Wars fans. I have a video from 1977 when they didn't have any Star Wars toys, except on Christmas, they had a lightsaber that was basically made out of a flower 
light and a semi-translucent tube that you could put these little colored discs in them to turn them red or blue. So the lightsaber is this thing that people have wanted for years. But a couple of weeks ago, there was a sort of a tease by a big wig at Disney who was on a live stream and debuted this. Apparently, they have come up with a lightsaber that seems to operate. We don't know exactly how it works yet. They did release some new images this week in relation to the hotel. But yeah, it's apparently a lightsaber that that seems to operate the way a real lightsaber would do. So instead of, uh, so it actually appears to come out of the hilt that you hold in your hand and extend out. And then when you turn it off, it disappears back into the hilt, just like it does in the movies. And so fans are just losing their minds over the idea that Disney has has come up with this thing and a lot of people want to know where to buy it. (laughs) I don't think it's available yet. I don't know if it's going to be available. But you can't stay at the hotel, the Star Wars hotel. That's right, yeah. So Is, Is that in the plans for you? Maybe someday. I think it's going to be about 2027 or 28 before I'll be able to get a reservation there because it's not a huge hotel. It's fairly small. At Disney World, right? Yes, right. In Florida, it's a completely Star Wars themed, not only hotel, but the entire experience, as they describe it, is like going on a Star Cruiser and being on a Star Cruiser for a couple of days at a time. It's like a two night stay, two days and two nights kind of stay where you feel or you're supposed to feel as though you are actually on a Star Wars cruiser in space and all the cool things that come along with that wow that's amazing we're talking about lighting we're talking about star wars you're so generous with your time let's end it on the subject of your great documentary about the sound yeah of star wars can people find that online and tell us about this sound you are at 10 on this issue aren't you (laughs) tell us how sound makes star wars happen this has been sort of my newfound love in the last couple of years is talking about and learning more about the sound design behind star wars which of course started back with the original film there was a guy named ben burke he's still at skywalker sound in northern california but he was the guy that went out and gathered all of the sounds that eventually became the spaceships and the lightsabers and the creatures and you name it in the star wars world so a tie fighter for example was sort of a mix of an elephant scream for example so we did a documentary a few years ago that was focused on the sound designers behind star wars the last jedi and so we got to go to the Holy Land, Craig. We got to go to Skywalker Ranch in Nicasio, California, which is just north of San Francisco. There's thousands of acres where George Lucas has built this creative community, basically. It's not where he lives, but it's where he's got an office and production facilities. It's the home of Skywalker Sound, built into an old building that resembles a 150-year-old winery. But inside... It looks old on the outside, but inside, it's one of the most technologically advanced buildings in the world, and that is where they come up with the sound design for all of these films, and not just Star Wars films. They work on, in fact, Star Wars is about 1% of what they do, but they do all of the Marvel films, they do all the Pixar movies, they have an agreement with Sundance, 
to work with up and coming filmmakers to create soundtracks, sound design for smaller independent films. So it kind of runs the gamut from big budget Hollywood movies to independent movies. And it's all done in this amazing little sound factory in California. And you did a documentary on it. And was it for ABC? Do they have control of it? Where can we watch this? Probably the easiest way to find it right now is to go to my website, which is ClaytonSandell.com. And uh, there's a link up at the top that says Star Wars Stories. And it's one of the first links on my Star Wars Stories page. You can click on it. It's half an hour. It takes you behind the gates of Skywalker Ranch to meet the sound designers. And you learn a lot of specifics about how they created specific sounds, how they created certain moods in the film, how they are able to basically use sound to elicit an emotional response. It truly is magic the way they do it. It's a lot of fun. I, we had a lot of fun making it, and uh, and I hope people still like watching it. This has been magical for me, getting behind the gates of Clayton Sandell. <laughs> I've watched your work. I've admired it. I hope you had a good time on the podcast. Uh, this was a lot of fun, Craig. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks so much, Clayton. All right. May the force be with you. And with you, sir. Take care. Take care. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. David Gunders, our troubadour, you have done it again. Magnificent song this week. I love it. Ain't no way you're coming home. Tell everybody about it. I forgot its pedigree. Okay, that allows me to explain what it's all about, and I will. Okay. First of all, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Craig? Good. I just heard the title. And I said I need it for this show. And I think you know why from our walks together, our creative journeys, when I said that I had Clayton Sandell, a Star Wars expert, an interview we recorded on May the 4th. Now it's many days later and darned if, I mean, how could it be more perfect than ain't no way you're coming home to illustrate time travel, space travel, all that science fiction stuff, huh? Well, I, I suppose it could apply to that too, Craig. Well, it could be a love story, but I think you reference a bird taking off, which could be right. a metaphor for a space vehicle and <clears throat> a guy who explored something and decided it was barren and decided to move on or she moved on. You can decide when you hear the song, but I need to know 
Is there a Star Wars guy in you? Oh, yeah. I love Star Wars. I mean, I wasn't a kid when Star Wars came into being. I was a Star Trek guy. I love Star Trek. And, and then Star Wars, you know, the first one, I loved it, but I was already grown. I was never into science fiction, those sorts of classes. In fact, I think we were assigned to read a science fiction book, and I procrastinated, and I, I just made one up called Voyage to Venus, and I think I got a passing grade. Can we write a limerick around that one, Craig? You know, gosh, <laughs> your mind goes in that direction, but you are in the music industry. I think that this is wise, Dave, in this song, and I know the style of this song. Do you? Um, I would say it's blues. With elements of rock? Yes. Absolutely. Rock, blues, and I'd add another thing not normally associated with music, but apropos of our conversation, space. It's spacey. Right. I've never heard you start a song the way you did this one, or even more profoundly, to illustrate a concept of the vastness of space. You had an ending I've never heard on a Dave Gunder song before. Right, right. I remember holding out like uh, feedback. Yes. I had feedback running going through uh, my hollow body electric guitar, and I let it go for a while. So I thought that's great. Now, when you title a song, it's like my way of forgetting. Way of forgetting Throughout the song, you had a way of forget N without the G on the end, but you put it on the title. How come you use bad English in the title here? Well, I wouldn't refer to it as bad English. Ain't it's... no way you're coming home. <laughs> right. To start I, a sentence with ain't. I know, and I like I like uh, I like you know double negatives and triple negatives. So you'll never really know what I mean. Right, but you had a profound line in there that involves. The word no, I'd seen what I need to know. Right. Right. It's a dark song. It's very droney. That's what I think you mean when you say spacey. It has that it's drone good. quality. And I do believe it's someone coming to terms with a deep and meaningful separation, a very, very painful separation. Right. It's time to explore another planet, right? And when you say the song, I've got your number, you're not talking about a phone number. It's I've sized you up, and that, you're, you're not really for me, and I'm not for you. That's right. Beautiful. I like that. Would you go to space if you could? I think I would. Now, I, I just talked with Clayton Sandell. Let's start here. Yeah. There's a Star Wars hotel where you pay a boatload of money to have a totally immersive, several-day experience. Would you get on the waiting list and do that? I probably won't actually get on the waiting list, but it sounds thrilling. What about if there was a two-week trip to the moon, round trip, God willing, and say it had gone for a couple of years and only one or two accidents, would you go? Sign me up. Because it's the moon, your favorite orbiting asteroid? Well, because it's the moon and because I think it would be really, it'd be an unforgettable experience to see Earth from space. I agree with that. What if it was a year-long trip to Mars and it cost about a million bucks? I'd better have good company. You are so busy now. Dave has a remodeling business. I don't Shout out the name. You do great work. Look out renovation, folks. And, and you've never been more busy. And you've been busy in your life. And now 
your music, everybody wants you to play. What's it like back to performing professionally around Metro Denver? That's got to be thrilling to be out and about and see people. It is. It is. And uh, for myself and all my bandmates, we're we're very happy to be at this place in time. We've got some gigs lined up. Some of them are outside events and uh, very much looking forward to that. Well, that's cool. The sound of music is so beautiful. Before we go, we've got to say something about our mothers. Our mothers are gone. My mother, Barbara, she is my muse. I see her in Venus. I would definitely pay for a trip to Venus. I put her there because it's the prettiest planet. She's so beautiful. What are your thoughts about your mama on this Mother's Day weekend? Well... Wherever you are, Ma, I love you, and uh, I always think of you, especially on Mother's Day. My Ma was the greatest mother. And happy Mother's Day to Trish and to Lisa. They're dazzling mothers as well. Yes, you they are. That, right? Yes, they are. And I think this song, as you reach out to wherever to talk to your mother, how did you put this music together? Do you have horns in there and background singing? Yeah. Uh, who all is involved? Because it's it's really different than anything I've ever heard from you. A lot of it was just my um, my own my own efforts. I think um, on guitar and slide, and then um, the accordion is what gives it, gives it the drone. And then there was my my rhythm section, the bass and drummer. But I think aside from the bass and drummer, it was all uh, it was my playing on that one. Well, Dave Cunders, our troubadour, you outdid yourself. Way to go, Dave Cunders. Give this a listen. Ain't no way you're coming home. Thanks, Craig. I could have guessed it. I might have known I look around But this bird's already flown And I'm standing here Tears, they've come and gone And I know it's time to face it Ain't no way you're coming home Love takes a victims, love takes a toll I look around and these hills are bare as bones I turn away I've seen what I need to know I've done all I can do And the way you're coming home Stone. Your spirit's free, but your heart is all alone. Once you were mine, but you slipped right through my hands. I've got no better chance than a fish out on dry land. I wish you nothing, nothing but the best. You split to my heart, put me to the test. I'm riding on. I ride alone 
got your number Ain't no way you're coming home It's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers. If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800, ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kids' education, my grandchild's education. And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, what? Let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then 
he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I'm thrilled to welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, in this case, literally World War II stories, and kick around current events. Professor Don Smith, Sturm College of Law at the University of Denver, welcome. Thank you. You came to my attention with a column in the Colorado Sun, where I'm privileged to be columnist at large. It was tremendous what you wrote because I had not thought about this subject as much as I should have, being a Jewish guy, thinking about the Holocaust quite a bit. Tell everybody about the column you wrote. Well, I co-authored a column with a colleague of mine, Rachel Camlet, and we wrote about the, the topic of the involvement of the German legal profession in the Holocaust and made the argument that without the complicity of German lawyers, judges, and prosecutors, the Holocaust would probably not have unfolded the way it did. The column was written as a result of the course that Rachel and I teach called Holocaust Seminar at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. And and our research in respect to the role that the legal profession played. Wow, what a fascinating topic. Being a lawyer almost 40 years now, you don't hear that discussed very often. And you bring up the point, why would lawyers talk about that? It's a mark of shame. Yes, and that was a conclusion that Rachel and I came to As recently as four or five years ago, if someone had asked me whether lawyers played a prominent role in the Holocaust, I would have said, well, no, they didn't. The Holocaust was carried out by thugs and criminals and people who were not sophisticated, like lawyers. But when we began to look at it more closely, we saw that Lawyers were involved in every step of the way, creating laws, implementing, helping enforce the laws, and essentially being Hitler and the Nazis' handmaiden at every step. It was fairly shocking for us because I had never heard anything like this. And in my 
law school education and all the things that I've done in the law. I've never heard this. So tell everybody what sparked your interest in the subject. Well, my interest began with the fact that my father, as a 19-year-old soldier in the 82nd Airborne Division, was part of a group that liberated a camp in a small village named Wablen in Germany. Wablen is about 50 miles straight east of Hamburg, where Neuengamme, a huge concentration camp, was located. In the summer and autumn of 1944, the SS, who were running Neuengamme, they ran all the concentration camps, made a decision to move prisoners, Neuengamme was a work camp, to move workers around into the more central part of Germany. And one of the places they chose was this little village, Fablen. On May 2nd, 1945, the 82nd Airborne Division, which was led by James Gavin, discovered this concentration camp. There had been about 5,000 people there, but at least 1,000 were dead when they got there. And subsequently, on May 7th, 1945, which is today, actually, 76 years ago today, a funeral was held in a nearby town called Ludwigslust, which is about three miles away. And my father and other members of the 82nd went out into the community and ordered people to come to the funeral, where 200 of the dead were buried right in the center of this town of Ludwigslust. And I remember him telling me that when they went out to get these people and order them to come to the funeral, that they all claimed they didn't know what was going on at this concentration camp, which was only three miles away, which was quite incredible to him since he said, and General Gavin said, you could smell the death at this camp from miles around. So as a consequence, I knew that he had been at that location, but I never really asked him about it. And he wasn't one to talk much about his experience in World War II. But uh, several years ago, I decided to go to Germany and go to this site where the camp was. There is a museum there that commemorates the people at the camp, the prisoners, and also the role of the 82nd Airborne Division in liberating it. So that's why I became interested. What killed the thousand people at the Boblin concentration camp? Those people died from starvation. And who were the people? The people were largely, in terms of nationalities, Poles, Belgians, Dutch, some French people as well. Political prisoners? These people were largely Jews Hmm. or political prisoners in the case of the people from Holland. There were people who had been arrested for resistance in Holland, and they had been sent to this camp as well. But the thing to bear in mind is that this was a satellite camp of Nuendama. So it was just a place to hold people. 
Right. No, I've got it. You said it got up to 5,000 people. Yeah. So when your dad arrived to liberate, did 4,000 people get freed? 1,000 dead? About 4,000. Wow. Yes. Yeah. What a mitzvah. What a blessing your father performed. Yeah. And he didn't talk about it. So how did you figure it out? He had told me at various points when I was growing up that the 82nd Airborne Division had liberated a concentration camp. But as with many things with children and their parents, I didn't explore that very far with him. And he never really used the word liberator to me. He never described that the word liberator to my sisters or me. But a few years ago, I talked to a friend of his in Kansas City, and she told me that he was very proud of what the 82nd had done, and he referred to himself as a liberator. But this wasn't something he ever talked about. And I, I remember asking him on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, because the 82nd was involved in D-Day as well. That was the first time he saw combat. He was 18 then. He told me that the war was something he didn't really want to talk about, that that was in the first part of his first half of his life, everybody sacrificed that he knew. And it wasn't a topic that he thought was particularly interesting because so many young men had sacrificed during the war. After the war, he came back and went to law school and his career was in the law and then subsequently a state court judge in Kansas. But he was not one to ever tell people what he did because he thought it was kind of a form of bragging, and he said it was just, I did what I was asked to do. Is your father still alive? No, he died in 2002, and so unfortunately, he never knew about this museum or the memorial at the site of the camp. How did you find out about it? I, in early 2017, I knew I was going to be going to Germany in March. And I got out a map, a German highway map, that my father and I had actually looked at in 1995 when I asked him about the 50th anniversary of Gide. And he circled a number of towns and cities around Germany where he had been during the war. And he circled this little town, Boblin. It's a, you know, I mean, there's just a few hundred people there. So I decided I would go to Germany a few days early. And what did you have a conference there or something? Yeah, I had a conference there. So I flew to Hamburg and rented a car and I drove to this little village. I mean, it's only about 50 miles away. And I just, sort of showed up. On the web, it said that there was a museum there. So I visited the museum and I met two women, a woman named Ramona Rathensaller and another woman named Connie Newman. I mean, I just appeared at their door and they welcomed me and I told them that my father was in the 82nd and they couldn't have been more friendly. And then they told me about the museum. They told me about 
the memorial, which is located a couple of miles from the museum. And they told me that every year on May the 2nd, they hold a ceremony to remember what happened at the camp. And they invited me to come in 2018. And so I went in 2018 and met various people, maybe 150 people who for one reason or another, their mothers had been there, their grandfathers had been there, an uncle had been there. And I met these people and it's kind of a community that Ramona and Connie have put together. Now, something to bear in mind is that where Voblin is located is in a state called Mecklenburg. The state of Mecklenburg was in East Germany. And so before 1990, Westerners were not welcome. I mean, you couldn't get in. Right. So it's only about 30 miles from the West German border, but Westerners couldn't get in. After 1990, people from the U.S., from the 82nd Airborne Division, several of the soldiers would come and speak at, at the event and so on. But of course, when I kind of arrived on the scene, the soldiers who used to come, they're not alive anymore. And so I guess... For them, I represent kind of a connection to the 82nd Airborne Division through my father's presence there on May 2nd, 1945. You took on quite a responsibility. How did you fulfill it? How are you fulfilling it? Well, initially, I had to do some research on the 82nd's role at Voblin. The 82nd had been in Cologne in late April of 1945, but General Eisenhower had ordered General Gavin and the 82nd to go north because they wanted to essentially cut the Red Army off because it was charging from the east. It had gone through Berlin at that point. It was still in Berlin, but it was rapidly moving west. General Eisenhower was afraid they would turn and go north into Denmark and maybe try to occupy Denmark. So the 82nd was told to go north and just a little bit east to meet the Red Army. So interestingly enough, I found out that my father was one of 30 Americans, American soldiers, who met the Red Army on April the 30th, 1945, near where this concentration camp was, maybe 10 miles or so. Wow. So initially, I, I tried to figure out what did the 82nd do? Because, I mean, there are no notes from my father and there are no books written about this or anything. But I, on the web, did as much research as I could, and I went to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene to see, because they have all these World War II records, and to go through them to see exactly where the 82nd had been at that time, and I, you know, confirmed what I already knew. Let me just stop you for one second. Did you bring up Kansas, where you have your roots, now you're in Colorado? Yeah. And that's yeah. the Eisenhower connection, because we claim Mamie Dowd, as you know, 
There was oh, a park right. not far from DU. So it must have been kind of a work of pleasure on your part to go oh. to the Eisenhower Institute. I bet you like Ike. Yeah, well, I mean, Kansans always claim Eisenhower is native son, although he was actually born in Texas. But yeah, I tried to do some research. And then in 2018, I went to the event and there were several dinners and German high school kids put on a play called Resistance that was about the Nazi regime and resisting it. And I was included in all of these things. And then in 2019, they asked me to speak at the ceremony they have at the actual site where there is a memorial built at the actual site. You know, it is difficult to try to put into words something that my father observed. I obviously never observed it. And I feel quite reluctant to get credit for something that he did that I really didn't know much about. But I spoke for four or five minutes. And and what I said was that I thought his experience there had impacted his life because in the 1960s in Western Kansas, where we lived, he consistently spoke out for the need for civil rights. And he also spoke out against the Vietnam War. And I remember him saying at the time that people shouldn't be so enthusiastic about war if they don't really know what it's like. And he said, you know, it's it's awful. Yeah. I mean, your dad didn't talk about it, but I'm thinking about getting to the heart of Germany the way he did. He must have seen some brutal things. Oh, I'm sure he did. And he also told me, which I thought was revealing, he said, uh, there are no heroes in war. Everybody's just trying to survive. And which I, I thought was interesting. But in growing up, I also appreciated the fact that he never told me or my sisters that we had a responsibility to dislike Germans because of his experience in the war. He never said that. He said that he thought there were probably a lot of members of the German army who were just like him, were young and were ordered to fight. Now, he had nothing good to say about the Nazi leadership or the SS, nothing good to say about them. But as a kid growing up, you look at your parents and you listen to them and the experiences they've had. And and I guess I look back now with more respect about, you know, doing what he and the other soldiers did, but then not coming back and bragging about it, just coming back and getting on with their lives and letting their children make up their own minds about the world. But he was always, as long as I knew him, a big champion for civil rights and for being very cautious about foreign intervention in the form of of war. And I don't know what part of Kansas exactly, but I expect that was the minority position in the community, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think one other thing to mention, to put this in a little bit more context, historical context, my grandfather, his father, William Amos Smith, 
1926, ran for the Republican nomination for attorney general in Kansas. And at that time, the Ku Klux Klan had a corporate charter to operate. He ran, of course, campaigns were much different then, but... What year was this, Don? 1926. Right when similar shit was going on in Colorado. Yeah. So he ran, and his main campaign pledge was that if he got elected attorney general, he would work to remove the Klan's corporate charter in Kansas. And he did. He won the primary. I mean, there were like five people in the primary. And there were candidates who were Klan candidates. I mean, people didn't avoid saying that they supported the Klan. Well, anyway, he gets elected in 1926. And shortly thereafter, the Klan loses its corporate charge. So it's no longer protected the way other corporations are. And then in 1939, my grandfather, William A. Smith, who at that point was a member of the Kansas Supreme Court, wrote an opinion that was one of the precursors to Brown versus Board of Education. Now, Brown versus Board of Education was a federal case, of course, but the case that he wrote the opinion involved a school district in Kansas City, Kansas, that was effectively segregating children into white and uh, black schools. And he wrote the opinion that essentially forced the school board to desegregate. So my family's history, I guess you would call it, has for a long time been based on, you know, respect for other people and civil rights. And I see what my father did at Vaudlin is sort of carrying that on, although he, he didn't know at the time. I mean, they didn't know that this camp existed on May the 1st, 1945. Right. So I in my own way, as a white male, have had a very privileged life. And I saw this as an opportunity to spend some time thinking about and trying to educate people about what happens when a government refers to a group of people as the other or vermin or... Right. We'll get right to it. But let me just salute the Smith family. You are justifiably proud and they were all attorneys, so you take pride in that. I am the third straight. My brother, older than me, I assume you were the firstborn in your family, getting your dad's name Donald, right? And Correct. The bottom line is we both come from three generations of lawyers, and my grandpa Harry was trying to practice law in Colorado in the 20s, but it was sort of tough after he got out of the Westminster School of Law, which is now folded into DU, because the Klan mm -hmm. was running things, and Judge Bornley was waiting in district court. He'd have to have a guy named Smith go argue the case instead. And then mm -hmm. my dad, mm -hmm. he got rescued by your father because he graduated West High in 44, got drafted, was going to go to war. 12 weeks got reduced to eight weeks of basic training because things had turned bad with the Battle of the Bulge. But guys like your mm -hmm. dad who fought the war to the end, turned the tide again, 
and my old man got to serve his two years in Texas and Oklahoma, and I take pride in that. They were safe, right? Nobody attacked there. But it was really your dad who enabled my dad to have a family and go to DU Law School on the GI Bill. I have to believe when you're teaching this class on the Holocaust and the lawyers who enabled it at DU Law School, that your old man and maybe my old man and my grandpa are over your shoulders. Is that right? Do you feel your dad's presence when you teach this class? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Because I think that it is a reflection of how he felt about the role of the legal profession or what it should be in protecting people's rights and speaking up for people who can't have a voice. And for him, the goal of being in the law, he saw the law, I think, as a profession, as a way to help people, not as a way to make lots of money or to build up one's own reputation. He saw it as much more of a service and that as a member of a profession, you have a responsibility that goes beyond just whatever the statute says or whatever a case says. You need to always be looking for ways to help. And that's kind of the philosophy that I've adopted. And with the opportunity to teach this course at BU, I've had a chance to try to explain to these young uh, lawyers-to-be the enormous responsibility they have because the German legal profession completely rolled over for the Nazis. And it happened quickly. And it was in a Western civilized Christian nation that was advanced for its time. And they had a lot of the same bar associations that we do now. And you want to talk about a progressive society. It was in Germany. Am I right? Correct. I mean, the German legal system was considered very sophisticated and in some respects more advanced than the American legal system in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So, yeah, we're not talking about a country that had completely broken down institutions and didn't have a strong legal profession. It did. But once Hitler came to power, this all began to change, and it changed very rapidly. And a bunch of big-time lawyers did Hitler's bidding. What are the two or three or five, whatever you got, what fact could you give me that would shock me? Craig, you won't believe it, but this happened. Well, I mean, Hitler's personal lawyer was a guy named Hans Frank. When I say personal lawyer, what I mean is that in the 20s and early 30s, this is the guy Hitler would go to to get legal help. Like Rudy Giuliani, for modern reference? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and got it. Once the Germans invaded Poland in September 1st, 1939, and occupied it, Hans Frank was the governor general of what they called the general government, but it was effectively a Poland. Now, Poland was where the killing, industrial concentration camps were set up, Auschwitz, Birkenau, and all the others. Hans Frank was the leader, the governor of that territory. 
And so obviously he knew what was going on. He knew that Jews in particular were being rounded up and put into ghettos and ultimately sent to these death camps. He knew that. Right, but he was doing the bidding of his client, Adolf Hitler. Yeah, and he is one that that I think particularly, there was a judge called Roland Freisler, who was the chief judge for a while of something called the People's Court. And the People's Court tried essentially uh, political prisoners. And there were outrageous decisions in these cases. There was no reason for the defendant to even put up any defense because Freisler knew what the result was going to be. And he was an awful man. At one point, he said that the law, well, he, he didn't say this. Many lawyers said this. The law was whatever the Fuhrer wanted it to be. They called it the Fuhrer principle. Sounds like the Republican platform right now. Yeah. So, you know, Freisler was another one. And then there, some of the leaders in the SS were lawyers. The Vance Conference, which was held on an important day in America, January 20th, which is always every four years when the new president is inaugurated. But on January 20th, 1942, 15 German officials met in a suburb called Vance, which is southwest of Berlin, you know, a few miles, 10 miles or something. They met there for what is now known as the Vance Conference, which is where they came up with or decided how they were going to implement the final solution. Of the 15 men, eight of them were either lawyers or trained in law. So there are legal handprints all over the Nazi state. And ultimately, the law was based on this Fuhrer principle. We carry out what we think the Fuhrer wants us to do. One of the things that I was very curious about as they took Jews to their death in cattle cars to Auschwitz-Birkenau and the rest of the killing sites, I mean, we're both American lawyers, where is the statute? Where is the regulation? On what basis do they round these people up, put them in cattle cars, and send them to their death? And one can't find any statute as such because there isn't any. The SS was basically carrying out what they thought Hitler clearly wanted. Didn't the local ACLU run to the courts and say, we need an injunction, stop this train? Yeah, no, I mean, that... What would happen? I mean, at some point, I bet there was that attempt. Well, there were lawyers and judges, a handful who tried to put, I mean, they couldn't really stop it, but to ask questions about it. But these people would all end up in concentration camps. Or in the case of some judges, they would just retire and sort of disappear. And some of them ended up in concentration camps. So the system Hmm. was set up to punish anybody in a legal context who challenged these. 
So did lawyers write briefs supporting the theory of Germans being the master race? There certainly were law journal articles written about that kind of thing. And there were professors. I mean, the group that I associate with. By 1939, 90% of the law professors in Germany were also members of the Nazi party. A lot of this was just in the form of law journal articles, speeches by the justice minister and so on. I think that most of the time, in these cases, when they would go before judges, I mean, it was preordained what was going to happen. Uh, the defense could say whatever they wanted to. Now, to go back to many of these Jews who were sent to the death camps, the Nazis used various things like uh, preventative arrest. And under that, the SS could just go out and round up people. There was no right to a hearing or anything else. For example, on Kristallnacht, on that night, they went out and they rounded up thousands of Jewish, prominent Jewish professionals. These people were arrested. They were immediately sent to concentration camps. There were no court hearings. Nothing like that. It was left up totally to the SS. Wait, if it was progressive, a lawyer could go to a clerk's office, institute a lawsuit. What are you saying? They would refuse jurisdiction, saying, hey, it's the SS, we can't do anything. To go back to the Reichstag fire decree of 1933, that decree, which wasn't very long, I mean, it's maybe just a page long, but it gives the government the right to detain people without a hearing if the government thinks those people are a threat to the German nation. And it was originally used to round up communists who were seen as the major opposition party to Hitler in 1933. But ultimately, through that decree, and then through the workings of Heinrich Himmler and the SS, the SS was given the right to detain anybody they wanted to and send them directly to a concentration camp. So if an SS person came to my door today, knocked on the door, of course, they didn't need a warrant. And where did that power come from? From Hitler's decree or some legislative pronouncement? It came from Hitler's decree, the Reichstag fire decree, and also the fact that Hitler had told the SS by 36 or 37 that they could operate completely outside the court system. And what did the legal community say about that? Or were they too afraid to say anything? As far as I can find, they said nothing. They said nothing. That's not what a Smith would have done. But the <sighs> Smith probably would have been off and uh, put in the camps. What about you? Do you have any Jewish heritage? Not that I'm aware of. And when you grew up in Kansas, did you know many Jewish people? Because now you're making presentations to countless Jewish groups. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, my best friend, when I was growing up, his father was Jewish. If someone had told me that, and maybe they did, I wouldn't have paid any attention to it. I liked him. We 
good friends. We like each other. But I can say that when I went to the University of Kansas as an undergraduate, someone told me that this friend of mine, they were saying he couldn't get into certain fraternities at the University of Kansas. This was 1976, not all that long ago, because he was Jewish. I, I just said that, you know, that that is preposterous. I mean, surely that's, I was not in a fraternity myself, but surely that doesn't exist now. But apparently it did. Right. And obviously the, the primary victims, well, so many victims in World War II, but six million Jews, a third of our people were slaughtered. So yeah. when you get into Holocaust history, you're dealing a lot with Jewish people. And what we want to extract from your class, and I imagine this is your goal, is applying it to lessons for today. Are there any? Oh, yeah, I think there, there are quite a few. And these discussions came up this year, particularly in the context of what happened on January the 6th in our own country and the insurrection that we saw. But, you know, the last four years, I think, have been troubling to many people. When Donald Trump referred to there were fine people on both sides at the neo-Nazi parade in Charlottesville where someone was killed and people were wearing Nazi, you know, emblems and that kind of thing. Trump's reference to some refugees or some people trying to get into this country as vermin. He used that word, vermin, and that they would infect Americans. This is exactly out of the Nazi playbook. This is exactly what Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels said about Jews. And then I sort of looked on with bafflement and ultimately horror at what some members of the American legal system did after the uh, November election. And, you know, I waited for the American Bar Association or, or some major groups to condemn what was going on. And the fact that lawyers were bringing one meritless case after another. Let's name names. Okay, the culpable lawyers, because there were culpable lawyers helping Hitler along. Yeah. And you went there, you went there in your column, and I bet you got pushback. Oh, my God, Don Smith, don't you know when you start making Holocaust metaphors and analogies, you are violating some cosmic rule that you've gone too far? Well, I'm not saying that the United States in 2000. 21 is Nazi Germany in 1933. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there are some parallels that are disturbing. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. Let's not forget Colorado's own Jenna Ellis. Yeah, Jenna Ellis. And many people with law degrees Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, Louis Gohmert, congressman from Texas. There are plenty of lawyers who have been involved in this effort to try to reinstall Trump as president. And 
this came up because in the course, with people wondering, well, what is going on? And where is the sort of organized legal profession? Correct. And now with the big lie that is still out there, the threat yeah. is just as real. Liz Cheney, who's a lawyer, she stood up. And other lawyer, Mitt Romney, has yeah, stood up yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Even Mitch McConnell, who I had in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, he stood up for a minute to say, this is bullshit. You started this January 6th crap, but very few of them are doing it. When the words big lie with the capital B and the capital L are used, we're going there. Do you think that's appropriate with this ongoing claim that the election was rigged? Well, I mean, the big lie has been provided a lot of fuel by lawyers, by people who are trained in the law. Now, thankfully, the 60 or so courts that booted these cases out stood up. Now, that is something that did not happen in Nazi Germany. In 1933, when this Reichstag fire decree was issued, which I, I mentioned, courts still could have stood up and said, no, you don't have any constitutional right to do what you have issued, and we're going to overrule this. Courts didn't do that then. Fortunately for us, courts did stand up. But I think that people like Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, they need to be sanctioned. I mean, what if people in the medical profession went around and said, smoking doesn't cause cancer? I think a lot of people would say, where is the American Medical Association? Why are they not sanctioning these people? And I feel the same way with the bar associations not speaking out firmly against this atrocious behavior that, taken to its furthest limit, would have installed someone as president who didn't get elected. It's my understanding that the big lie at the turn of the last century was Okay, World War I really wasn't lost. We got sold out by a bunch of people who aren't part of our master race. Right. Yeah. And then Hitler glommed onto that, and the Jews betrayed us. All these non Germans betrayed us. The stab in the back, that right. sort of thing. And here the big lie is the election was rigged, and it gets back to, well, who rigged the election? And then you start pointing at, Oh, there were problems in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Philadelphia, in Milwaukee, every city that's dominated by other people. And it's the same bullcrap, isn't it? And aren't there parallels? And that's why it's appropriate to capitalize the B and the L in big lie? I mean, of course. And the consequences are predictable. If you stir people up, You are stirring up big problems. Yeah. I mean, the Germans used the law. The Nazis used what they claimed was the law to make their actions credible. I mean, Germans, I think, have a reputation as being largely people who respect the law and follow orders and so on. And the Germans needed, the Nazis needed credibility. And how did they get credibility? They claimed all this stuff was done under the law. 
And they trotted out the celebrity lawyers, I bet, like Mark Levin and Judge Janine and people with law degrees who should know better to yeah. say. And they probably went on the radio and said, hey, this is legal. Respect the pure, right? So, the, you know, the facts are, are different, of course, but the goal is the same, to delegitimize the others. Right. And they even adopt some of the same phrases like America first. Can you believe that? And I think when we look at our own country, I think the element of white nationalism is all over this effort by Trump. And, you know, white nationalism basically means that white men are going to run everything and everyone else can go to hell. Tell me these lawyers who sold out for Hitler got what was coming to them after World War II. Well, unfortunately, as with a lot of the high-ranking actors in the Nazi party, there wasn't a whole lot of price that most of them paid. But I can tell you the Nuremberg trials, the one that we know best about, is the one that had Goering and Albert Speer and the very high-ranking people closest to Hitler. But subsequently, in 1947, there was something called the Justice Trial, which was kind of a sub-level Nuremberg trial. It was held in Nuremberg. And there were 15 high-ranking Nazi justice people who were tried. And of the 15, I think one died before the trial, four were acquitted, and 10 were sentenced to some time in prison. But none of them paid a very big price. And many lawyers, sad to say, (laughs) judges, once the Germanys were divided, the ones who ended up in West Germany, a few of them had high positions in West Germany. I guess the thought was that those people had been denazified, as the saying went, and it would be okay to have them in high positions. So they were okay in West Germany? Not all of them, but a lot of them. And of course... But what about East Germany? Did they have a harsher view? The Soviets paid such a price in World War II. You know, that that's an interesting question, Craig. The East Germans or people who grew up in East Germany would have you believe that they were much tougher on Nazis and SS officers in East Germany. But I'm not sure that that is the case, really. It's a little difficult to figure out, and it's one that I've thought about, but I haven't done a lot of research on. But in our own country, Werner von Braun, who made rockets, the V2, I think, which was shot at London and various places, he was welcomed with open arms over here. And he was, uh, you know, one of the most important individuals at NASA and the effort to get to the moon. So the Allies had their own ways to look at these people. And if they thought somebody from the old Nazi regime could help them, uh, they would sort of look the other way and welcome them on board. Right. But there are always lawyers behind the scenes. Before Bush Cheney instituted torture, they got some legal opinion written by a guy who's at Stanford now saying, It's okay. So lawyers do get involved. I'm glad you're exposing all of this. It's got to be rewarding for you. Just so 
people will know that I, I'm not somehow or another on a mission against just Republicans. The lawyers who represented Bill Clinton in the 1990s, who put out all kinds of lies about his activities with Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton himself, a lawyer himself. Right, but it wasn't going to lead to an insurrection at the Capitol. No, no, no. no. I mean, that's garden variety lying, not capitalized. You're correct about that. But I think in in the case of Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, these people should be called up before their respective bar associations, bar bodies that they're part of, and the licensing bodies in New York and Georgia or wherever Sidney Powell is, and should be asked to explain why they shouldn't lose their license to practice law. I mean, these people were involved and continue to be involved at least, I think, with Giuliani. It's a slippery slope, though. That's what lawyers worry about. Hell, I was stupid enough to vote for Donald Trump. I got off the Trump train after Charlottesville. In fact, Kyle Clark had me on Channel 9. Hey, Craig Silverman says Charlottesville bothers him, and I explained why. Mm-hmm. And he revealed some racism that I was unaware that he had. And then to see it triggered to such a degree that white supremacy, it was part of the insurrection. I've interviewed the Michelle Malkins of the world. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous. It's the precursors. And lawyers, to me, during the Trump term, and who am I to say that, uh, you know, when the, the tide should turn? But at a certain point, I think lawyers, we have a special responsibility to stand up to this crap. And it's not over with the purge of Liz Cheney, the Republican parties being run by conspiracy theorists who are inevitably going to say, hey, look what those other people are doing to us. They're cheating. They're robbing. So just like Trump said on January 6th, we get to play by these new brutal rules. And that's the beginning of real chaos and trouble. And I know you're dedicated to stopping that. Am I on to something? No, I think you're absolutely right. And something that I have begun to look at a little bit more is I, I don't teach a course in legal ethics, which all students are required to take, of course, to graduate. But I checked with one of my colleagues who teaches legal ethics, and I asked him whether any of this kind of thing that, that we're talking about right now, is there any discussion of this as, as part of a lawyer's responsibility. And he said, at least in the class he teaches, no. He told me he never really thought about this, but he wants to explore it further when we can all get together again, which, you know, will be a few months. And the question that I ask myself now is, shouldn't this be taught? Shouldn't some aspect of this be required to graduate from an ABA accredited law school. I mean, they'll say you're too woke on this. Tell everybody what you do teach. What classes are you, Professor? Well, I teach two classes right now. I teach a class on comparative European Union, US climate change and energy law, and then the course on the Holocaust uh, seminar. So those are the two courses I, I teach right now. And 
that's what I spend my time on. And that's fascinating because climate change is that similar in terms of if you're denying it, it's like some have said it's like denying the Holocaust. Is climate change an established fact? And if people disagree and if lawyers advocate the other way, is it similar with similar terrible consequences? And how do you stand on that, Professor? Well, I, to be honest, I've never really thought about that. But I do know there is more and more talk about a concept called climate justice that brings together climate change and human rights. The idea being that the most vulnerable people in the world, people who are going to suffer most from climate change, are oftentimes located in the poorest countries in the world and are people who have never benefited from the industrial revolution that obviously propelled Europe, the United States, and other places. They've never benefited from that, and yet now they're the people who are going to suffer the consequences of storms and hurricanes, floods. I like it. You're talking to a plaintiff's injury lawyer. I see a cause of action. Yeah. Or is it something beyond that? Reparations? Well, I suppose someone somewhere is thinking about reparations, but in many places, it is very difficult to even get your case before a judge because of procedural issues, issues of standing, that sort of thing. Now, there are some cases. In fact, last week, the German Constitutional Court handed down a case essentially saying that people in Germany have a right to something similar to climate justice. And the, the, the court asked the legislative body, the Bundestag and the chancellor, what they were doing to reduce climate change. Now, Germany is way ahead of the United States. But that gives you an idea that there are places in the world where these cases are beginning to take hold. And, right. and you, uh, I mean, with all of your experience, would be much better positioned than I am to know how far this could go. Who knows about the future? But it's going to be interesting. Climate change, you will be another resource when we have you back in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I've learned a lot. I'm proud of what you are doing to honor your father, your grandfather. And I hope you enjoyed the experience. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I mean, this is the longest discussion I've had with anybody outside the law school about what, what I'm trying to do. I guess, uh, you know, you encapsulated quite well that I feel like this is something that I can do that sort of carries on in some small way the legacy of my father and grandfather and also takes a look at a very chilling and cautionary tale about what happened to 6 million Jews and many other people when a government decided that they were the other and that they did not command any respect or dignity. And I live with the ancestors of some of these people like Rachel Camlet and talking to you and my best friend when I was growing up. These are things we all should be concerned about. I totally agree. You are making your family proud. 
thanking Ms. Camlet for her part of that brilliant Colorado Sun column. I will link it. And I'm glad that we gave you such an opportunity, Professor. Keep up your great work. Thank you, Craig. Bye-bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP, and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, I had another great week practicing law. So many good results for my clients. That makes me happy. If you'd like to be happy, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I'm getting good at this. Give me a call. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for your problem or case, I bet I know the right one. And I will tell you who it is. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. So that, my friends, was the show. My troubadour, love that song. Ain't No Way You're Coming Home. Love the title, the space rock, blues. Who does that? Our troubadour, Dave Gunders. And then, of course, Professor Don Smith, third-generation lawyer, doing God's work, in my opinion. And then thank you to Clayton Sandell. Check him out at claytonsandell.com. It was a terrific show. See you next week. Oh, and happy Mother's Day. Love you, Trish. 
love you, Mama. I love the good mamas of the world. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.